chapter 14. We are over the halfway point in the study of Revelation. As you know, Revelation was um, a vision of the future that was given by God to the Apostle John. And he wrote down what the Lord allowed him to write down in the book of Revelation. And much of Revelation deals with the tribulation. The tribulation is yet to come. Jesus has come one time, born a baby in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago. But when he left, he said, I'm coming again. And when he comes again, he is going to take us believers away. The unbelievers will remain. And then there will be seven years of horrible, terrible tribulation. But while that is certainly bad news for the unsaved, there's no bad news there for the saved. Because it's during the tribulation that the Lord is going to be making wrong right. He's going to be, if you will, settling the score once and for all. But the neat thing about the book of tribulation, while it describes these judgments and these horrors upon the unsaved during that seven-year time period, it is still nonetheless interspersed with nuggets of encouragement. And that's really what I've tried to focus on because this study hasn't been a verse-by-verse study. It's been a chapter-by-chapter study. It's been an overview study. And even in chapter 14, as we are in the midst of the tribulation and all these terrible things are happening, we are going to uh, examine tonight a nugget of gold that will hopefully encourage you. But let's just take a quick overview of Revelation chapter 14. Uh, This chapter really divides up into three sections. And and the first section deals with the commendation of uh, the 144,000. And it says in verse number one, and I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion and with him a hundred and forty, a hundred and forty and four thousand having his father's name written in their foreheads. These are 144,000 believers during the tribulation period that are here on the earth to be a witness to others. And Revelation 4, or Revelation 14, verse number 4. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. And here, women would not represent, I don't think, literal women, but the, the, the world system. They are not fornicators. They're they're not partaking of something they shouldn't partake of. They're not partaking of sin in the world system. These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So you see, even in the midst of What is described in Revelation, the horrors of the tribulation period, here is a ray of light. Here is some some hope. Here is something positive. One commentator said of these 144,000, these 144,000 were last seen in Revelation 7, where they were identified as a group of Jewish believers who ministered during the Great Tribulation and are given a seal of protection throughout that period. These are people that even in the midst of terrible persecution did not fail, did not falter. 
And they should serve as an inspiration to you and I. Because as the world, and even sadly our country, seems to be turning more and more hostile towards Christians, these 144,000 should serve to motivate us that even when it gets bad, you can still do it. You can still live for the Lord. You can still be a testimony for the Lord. And the Lord will look after you. I mean, we've never seen an election quite like this one. We've never seen candidates quite like these so obviously flawed in, in, in so many ways. And that, and that can be discouraging. I mean, we, we wish we had a believer on the ticket there that, that had a life of, 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 of honesty and integrity and morality and, and humility. We wish for that and we look and we don't see it. And it would be easy to get frustrated. I don't know that I've ever seen more people more frustrated than ever before. But we still need to and can be a shining light on the street where you live, the road where you live, the community in which you live, and having the church that you have. We, we need to not get discouraged. We, we can be concerned. And, 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 and we have reason to be concerned. But that concern should motivate us. And here, even in the middle of the tribulation... You have the Lord speaking so well of these men who remain faithful. And I trust he would be saying the same about us being faithful, even in the difficult times we're living in. Then he goes on. We said it divides up into three separate sections here. First is the commendation of the 144,000. And then there's warnings of the three angels. There's three angels that give warnings. And verse number six And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. And then in verse number 8, And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen. That means the world system, the, the world's corrupt system, whether it's economy or politics or whatever it is. Babylon, the world system, is being judged. Again, the tribulation is terrible, but it's, it's, it's the final battle. It's the settling the score. It, it's, it's God saying enough is enough, and he's making it right. Babylon has fallen. It's fallen. That great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And then in verse number 9, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Then verse number 11. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. I'm concerned as a pastor when it comes to preachers who are all just fluff. Now people need encouragement. I want to be an encouragement to you tonight. But we cannot, while we, while we bask in the glory of God's grace, we cannot ignore God's righteous indignation. If we only want to think about 
you know, rose petals and rainbows, then we're going to have uh, an immature understanding of God. God certainly is love. God's grace is real, and we are so thankful for it. But when Jesus came the first time, yes, he came as a babe in the manger, but when he comes the second time, it's an entirely different picture. He's coming to execute wrath, which is deserved, on those who have raised their fist in pride at God. They will deserve everything that happens to them. That's sad, but it's true. And while we all want to hear good news, while we all want to pat on the back, and and I want to give you good news, I want to pat you on the back, we would just be a cotton candy church. If that's, if that's all we did. No, we, we want a well-balanced diet around here. And we don't want to just focus on, on the wrath of God either. I mean, if I just got up here and beat you over the head with the wrath of God every opportunity I had, that, that would not be right. We want a well-balanced meal. Kind of like what Sharon does for me at home. You know, she, she will prepare a meal. I, I, I brought this up to her the other day. She will prepare a meal, and oftentimes, you know, she's cooked in pots, and the pots are on the stove, and it's just the two of us, and she says, supper is ready, you know, come and get your plate and go serve yourself. And, and, and I'll go over there, and, and, and she'll be standing there by the sta- stove, usually fixing her plate a, a, as well. And invariably, invariably, she'll say, don't forget the squash. Don't, don't, don't forget the squash. You know, make sure you get squash. Never one time in the history of our home has she ever said, hey, don't forget the pork chops. Be sure to get extra pork chop. Have you ever said that in your life to me? But squash, I hear squash all the time. I hear carrots all the time. I hear broccoli all the time. What else do I hear? Corn. Be sure and get the corn. Well, not that I was going to ignore that. Yeah, I would have. but, But she never one time. But she wants me... She wants me to have a, a balanced meal, and that's best for me. And I think a balanced view of God. In many churches today, the tendency, because we, we don't want to hear bad stuff, the tendency is pastors that are smooth, pastors that are funny, pastors that are personable, just telling funny stories and making everybody go home feel good. And, and there, there's a place for some of that. But there's, there's also a place for balance. And, and this, this is talking about God's judgment. These angels, first of all, they're pro- proclaiming the gospel first. God is always giving people opportunity to get right. But in the end, he says, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. And I tell you, people don't want that balance. In, in fact, there's, there's a lot of talk in ministerial circles about pastors and churches and entire denominations even denying hell, de- denying Satan. There was, there was a guy, big-time pastor in Grand Rapids, who I think wrote a book uh, to the effect of, of, if not denying hell, certainly doubting hell or watering hell down, if you will. I mean, that's the day in which we live, and you live in that kind of culture. And if you're not careful, you'll get caught up in that. And again, I'm not saying that you want a church that's just all fire and brimstone, and you don't want a church that's just all, you know, daisies and daffodils. 
you know, if we just pre- that's one of the reasons preachers need to do what, what I'm trying to do with you. When, when, when you preach through an entire book of the Bible, which I do often, you know, I, I've, I've preached through Wednesday, and I don't know how many books of the Bible. Uh, you know, when you preach through a whole book of the Bible, then you're going to get the balanced meal. You know, not cherry picked that what you think people are going to hear, so they'll come back, so they'll put the money in the offering plate. It's, it's good to have a pastor that dedicates at least Wednesday night to make sure I teach. I'm preaching through the whole book of Revelation. You, you're going to get the carrots on your plate, and you're going to get the steak on your plate as well. But what I want to point out here is while a lot of people today in our modern soft living culture are denying hell, we learn right here that it's real. It says they're tormented with fire and brimstone. And the, the torment ascendeth forever and ever. Morris said this, and I quote, This shows that the suffering of hell is real torment, that it is painful and repulsive. And he says this, The modern vogue for dispensing with hell has no counterpart in Revelation. He is acknowledging that modern tendencies in churches today are to discount or downplay hell. And he says, you don't find that in the book of Revelation. So, this divides into three different sections. The commendation of the 144,000, the warning of the three angels, and then the grim harvest of the earth is described. This will happen someday. In verse number 14, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Verse number 19, we'll skip down. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horses' bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. You know, I'm not picking on Joel Osteen, but I wonder if he's ever preached that. I'd be very surprised. And if I find out he did, I'll give him credit for it. But he he kind of represents what I'm talking about. And the Bible talks about that kind of of church in the last days. It, It talks about having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Well, when you deny the power thereof, what does that mean? Well, where's the power thereof? It's the Bible. You're denying the Bible. You know, you're leaving out portions of the Bible. This quote, It must be remembered that evil has its harvest as well as good. The good will be harvested when the Lord comes for us. There is a harvest of ministry, or misery and woe. A harvest for the gathering, binding, and burning of the tares as well as for the gathering of the wheat unto the garner of heaven. That's an overview of Revelation chapter 14. Is there something there that we can focus on, that we can take away? Is there a life lesson there? I read this statement, and I want to share it with you. The apostle in this book never keeps us too long in the shade without a break. Just as after the terrible convulsions depicted in the sixth chapter, we had the glorious vision of the blessed in heaven 
and that which followed. So it is here. That's an observation of a theologian who says, and I repeat, the apostle, talking about John, in this book never keeps us too long in the shade without a break. In other words, John describes what you would have to consider the horrors of the tribulation. But he doesn't just focus on the horrors of the tribulation. John is showing us balance. John will take us out of the shade into the sunlight. That's exactly what you see, for example, in this chapter in verse number 4. Now, you have the grim harvest of the earth. You have the warning of the three angels. But in verse number 4, for us believe, there's something in here to encourage us. In verse number 4, it says, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were the redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So in the middle of all this terrible judgment, all this terrible upheaval, when, you're, when you might be getting close to being discouraged or depressed or fearful, the Lord said, hey, wait a minute, what about these 144,000? And he brags on them, and, and, and he, he lifts them up. And even when you skip down to verse number 13, well, let let me just read this statement. The truth contained in this verse, the one we're about to read, is too precious a one to be left to the uncertainty of merely verbal tribulation. Let me read that again. Think about it. The verse we're about to read, it says, the truth contained in this verse is too precious a one to be left to the uncertainty of merely verbal tradition. What does that verse say? Verse number 13. And again, I'm talking about light in the midst of the storm. Light in the midst of, of the tribulation. Encouragement in the middle of these awful things that are reading. we're reading. Verse number 13 says this. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. The truth contained in this verse is too precious a one to be left to the uncertainty of merely verbal tradition. And that's why it says, write. Here is something precious. And John was told, write this down. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. So as we are studying through the book of tribulation and we see this judgment and this, you know, condemnation and the terrible things that are happening on earth, all through there, there are these reminders of the blessed, the reminders of what the the blessings of those who are saved, the blessings of those who are redeemed. And that's particularly stated here in verse number 13 as these angels are making their dreadful proclamations. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. One writer said the value of this truth is simply unspeakable. 
this is where we get our encouragement tonight. I want to share with you these thoughts. These thoughts are not original with me. I caught, I, you know, in, in my study, in my preparation, I found these. I, said, I, I want to share these with you. It's, it, it's, like, it's, it's like me realizing that the carrots are really good, and I want to share them with you tonight. Okay, these are, Sharon puts extra sugar in the carrots, so that makes them palatable to me. So, this, you know, even though I didn't cook the carrots, the carrots aren't mine, you know, I, I want to share them with people. Even those, these next, what is it, five thoughts, six thoughts aren't mine. They are worthy of our consideration tonight if you need encouragement. Number one, this truth, the truth is blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Number one, it shows us that death is not a terminus of life but an incident in living. Think about that for a second. It shows us that death is not a terminus of life, but an incident in living. I mean, it is, you do leave the body, but you continue to live. When you die, it's not the end of your life. It is really a change of location. It is a change of states under the guardian care of a divine redeemer who loves his own too much to let them perish. That's a comforting thought tonight. The fact that really death, yeah, it's death, but it's just the cessation of one part of your life and the beginning of another part. It is merely a door of transition. Believers should find that very, very comforting. Number two. In the light of such a truth, we should dread death less. We should dread death less. He says, nay, more, we ought not to dread it at all. Our Savior has passed through the gates of the grave himself, that he might deliver them who through fear of death have been all their lifetime subject to bondage. Our Savior has passed through the gates of the grave himself, that he might deliver us. In the light of such a truth, we should dread death less. And when you think on these things, it does comfort you. It does encourage you. It does give us the right perspective. Number three, a right use of this truth will prepare us for enduring with more calmness and bravery, the trials and the hardships of this life. When we understand this truth, I don't think we're going to be so fretful, so filled with anxiety to understand that it's really going through a door from this life to the next life. And so when you face difficulties in life that are challenging to you, we can find encouragement in that. Number four, let us not grieve unduly over those who are gone. That's a truth to learn from this verse that says, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. If they have died in the Lord and if we are living in the Lord, we shall go to them, but they shall not return to us. We can rejoice in the thought of the increasing wealth of our treasure in the heavenly state as saint after saint is caught upward into light. You know, I talk about, you know, my brother Steve was here. I'm the oldest. He's the youngest. And then my brother Ronald uh, is in the middle. But what you may not know, some of you probably remember me saying this in the past, there was a fourth brother. 
And his name is Joseph Keith. And I've always thought that was the most beautiful name I've ever heard, Joseph Keith. And I remember coming home. uh, I was young. I must have been six, five, six, seven. Yeah, I would have been right around there, probably five. Uh, And I don't remember why I had been sent away, but obviously there was a health problem with Joseph Keith. And I remember coming home to our modest little house in a modest neighborhood, working-class neighborhood, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. There was a bunch of cars around the house. And I saw family there. And at first I was like, hey, this is cool. I wonder what's going on. Somebody went and got me and brought me home. And I remember my uncle taking me out into the backyard. And he said, you know, your, your, your baby brother? And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, he went to be with Jesus. And what had happened was uh, mom and dad had given him these childhood shots and he'd had a bad reaction. And he was just an infant. I mean, an infant. And uh, he went home to be with the Lord. And uh, so I've, I've never gotten to know him. But one of the great things about heaven is going to be meeting Joseph Keith, me, Ronald, and Steve, to sit down with the brother that we really never knew. And God's going to do that for us. God's going to make that, make that happen. Let us not grieve unduly over those who are gone. You know, and there's the song, heaven sounding sweeter all the time. You know, as you grow older and more and more of those you love and care about go home to be with the Lord, it's just a bigger welcoming party there for you when you get there. Number five, let us look forward hopefully and cheerfully to our own future. What work the master may have appointed for us we cannot foresee, nor do we at all know uh, when we shall be called up to join the men who are made perfect. But we need not wish to know. It is enough for us that they uh, and we are one. We are going to meet with them. Our, our future is bright. And number six, lastly, knowing how well we are cared for in life and in death by our blessed Lord, let us concentrate all our energies on glorifying our Lord. This is the conclusion to which the Apostle Paul himself arrived knowing that when we are absent from the body, we shall be at home with the Lord. We should make it the object of our supreme ambition to be well-pleasing to him. With all he's done for us, and with what he has made possible, through which no one else could have possibly made possible, how could we do anything less than to try our best to live for him every hour of every day? Oh, it's hard sometimes. Sometimes we mess up. Sometimes we could kick ourselves. But the good thing about it is, The Bible is very clear. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're going to all mess up. But we can still, you know, as the old song says, pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and start all over again with the Lord. We can do that. Albert Barnes. We'll conclude with some quotes from Albert Barnes. He was a Bible theologian of the 1800s. Concerning this chapter... He says, the design of this, as of the previous representations of this chapter, is to show that all the enemies of God will be destroyed, and that therefore the hearts of the friends of religion should be cheered and consoled in the trials and persecutions which were to come upon it. And then he says, lastly, what could be better suited to sustain the church in the time of trial than the assurance that every foe will be ultimately cut off? What is better suited to sustain the heart of the individual believer 
than the assurance that all his foes will be quelled and that he will ere long be safe in heaven. It's ugly and it's messy now. It is going to be uglier and messier during the tribulation. But the joy is knowing that God's plan is being fulfilled. We have every reason to have comfort and peace in our hearts knowing that and knowing that for every one of us believers in this room, it's going to be a happy ending. It's going to be a happy ending. May The Lord may allow us to go through some trials along the way, and he has his reasons for that. But in the end, it's going to be a happy ending. Let's stand, please, with our heads bowed and our eyes.